Welcome to episode 105 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Major General Dawn L. Deskins. She is the Deputy Director of the Air National Guard at the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia. As the Deputy Director, she assists the Air National Guard Director in formulating, developing, and coordinating all policies, plans, and programs affecting more than 107,700 Air National Guard members and civilians in more than 1,800 units throughout the 50 states, the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Virgin Islands. In today's interview, we talked about why she joined the military, some highlights from her career, and how the people that she worked with pushed her and made it possible to get her where she is today. I found this interview inspirational and with so much great wisdom, and I know that you're going to enjoy it, so let's get started. listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm Amanda Huffman. I'm an Air Force veteran, author of Women of the Military, and a collaborative author of Brave Women, Strong Faith. I am also a military spouse and mom. I created Women of the Military podcast as a place to share stories of military women past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Well, thank you for having me, Amanda. It's a, it really is an honor, um, particularly since you yourself are a former uh, woman in uniform. So thank you for your service. Thank you. Yeah, and Air Force too. Let's get started with why did you decide to join the military? So, you know, it's I, I would love to tell you that I had this really great story of a commitment to serve and that I came from a long line of military uh, leaders, but actually it's a it's it's a it's a pretty selfish story because what what ended up happening was I went to college and financial things had changed uh, with my parents. I didn't realize at the time those, those, that financial situation had changed the way it did, uh, being an 18-year-old and being somewhat oblivious to what was going on at home with my parents' finances. And uh, they just really at that point could not afford to send me to college. So my dad had served for five years back in the early 60s, and he thought he had a solution to this. So he actually went ahead and enrolled me in Air Force ROTC over at Cornell University. I was going to Ithaca College at the time. So you know, out of the blue, I get a phone call from an Air Force captain who tells me the classes are going to start um, the following Thursday and proceeds to give me some information on reporting. I didn't understand where he got my phone, my phone number. I didn't know, understand how he heard about me. Uh, and that's when I called my dad and found out that he had uh, taken care of a obstacle he felt that he had in front of him, which was how to get me through college. And it decided ROTC was the way for me. So I really initially went in kind of kicking and screaming, really didn't want to do it. I had, I had plans, uh, big plans. I wanted to, be a, uh, wanted to be a broadcaster. So I had plans of, of going on and, and, uh, and doing that. But uh, he explained to me that ROTC was an opportunity and that I could take a test and maybe get a scholarship and that would pay for school. And all I had to do was four years on the other end. But as an 18-year-old, four years sounded like the rest of my life. 
So, you know, I, I really agonized um, in the beginning, but it, in the end, I wanted to go to college. So I went ahead and, uh, and, and took the test and I got a scholarship and I was supposed to go into missiles. And I wasn't too excited about that either. But again, I knew I was doing this as a, a, as a uh, way to meet a need. So, uh, so I, I just stuck with it. And I will be honest, I think I was kind of tainted in my view of what the military, what the Air Force was. You know, this was 1980. So we were just coming out of, you know, I kind of grew up in the Vietnam era and saw a lot. That's a lot of what I saw about the military was Vietnam. And by the 80s, things had really changed. And I didn't realize that they had changed. But my dad knew that this would be a good opportunity for me. So, you know, I did my two, uh, excuse me, four week summer camp at McConnell Air Force Base in Kansas. And that's when I got my real taste for the Air Force and started to get a feeling of, you know, this is something actually that might be a good fit for me for a little while. And I can certainly do it for four years. So, so that's what got me in with the intent that I would do four years and get out and then go on my life and be uh, there. There was a broadcaster. Name, her name was Jessica Savage. She had come out of Ithaca College, which is where I was going to school. And I wanted to be her. So I, I felt I was on that path after I gave my four years to the Air Force. But now as I'm approaching, see, I'm in my 36th year, uh, almost 37th year in the Air Force and in the Air Guard. I, it didn't quite work out the way I thought it was going to work out. Not quite the way that you thought, but that's cool that your dad, not behind your back, but I guess he kind of did and got you into ROTC. So that's kind of a cool story. My dad, when he found out I wanted to join the Air Force, he like drove me to the recruiter's office and I was like, oh, I guess, I guess you're on board with this. Yeah. <laughs> my, my mom wasn't quite as on board. I remember when I was getting on the plane right after I'd been commissioned and, and she took me to the airport and I was getting ready to go to Tyndall Air Force Base, which is uh, which was where my first assignment was. She said to me at the airport, she said, you look a little nervous. And I said, well, I am, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to a new place. And she said, I'm sure I can call someone and you don't have to go. And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's not true, mom. <laughs> I'm sure I have to go. That's funny. That's interesting. So let's talk about your first assignment. You went to Tyndall, you were a little nervous, but how did that did. all work out? I did. So I told you originally I was supposed to go into missiles. You know, in the uh, in the early 80s, there was a big shift um, in in where uh, the military, you know, what, what they were doing as far as modernization. And they were going away from one missile system to another. And they really weren't sure the missile system they had, that they had had took a four-member crew and the new one took a two-member crew. And they just really weren't sure that they, they had enough women to do two-member crews. And they really didn't want to put a man and a woman alone down in a missile silo together. So uh, so they, they turned around. They said, we're not going to send you to missiles. We're going to send you to be, at the time, it was called a weapons director. And I said, well, well holy smokes, what's that? So I looked it up and it mentioned radars and airplanes. And I thought, well, the assignments look a lot better than the missile ones because those were all like in fairly remote areas of the United States. So, uh, so yeah, so I went off to the schoolhouse at, at Tyndall Air Force Base. And that was my first exposure to the real active Air Force. And, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, I really enjoyed I enjoyed the career field. I enjoyed the lifestyle. I enjoyed the people, and um, and that's where I met my husband. He was he was my next door neighbor. He was he was active duty at the time as well. He worked on F-15s, and um, and that was my first positive experience in the uh, Air Force. Was meeting my soon to be husband. I love the story. I met my husband in ROTC, and I'm thankful for the Air Force that I met him. <laughs> 
But I thought it was really interesting. So when I did ROTC, I got to pick my job and I feel like I had a lot more control over like what I did. Did the Air Force tell you like this is what you're doing and you didn't really have a say? So or how did that so it goes back to that money piece again. <laughs> so when I took the test, I tested for a lot of different things and I didn't score high enough to be a pilot or a navigator, but I scored well enough to get a full scholarship if I was willing to be a missileer. So so that's why I let them pick what I was go- going to do. I'm sure I could have gone in and, and done something else, but then th- they wouldn't have paid for it. That makes a lot of sense. So you met your husband at Tyndall. Did you guys get married really quickly or what was that story? I know I'm going off the notes, but. So, no, no, that's fine. And actually that's, that's the, that's the story, you know, every parent's nightmare, right? I I go, I leave home. I go to Tyndall Air Force Base. I meet my husband. uh, Well, you know, I, I, I meet who will someday be my husband. Two months later, a little over two months later, we got engaged and uh, we got married in uh, May, right before I left to go to my first assignment at McCord. Uh, Part of that was driven by the fact that I knew I was going to be going to be PCSing after school. So that that kind of led us to make some decisions fairly quickly. But 35 years later, I've got to feel it was a good decision. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like a military romance, a little (laughs) accelerated. (laughs) Got to make decisions quickly when you're in the military. Yeah. So you went off to McCord and you guys were married, but were you separated for a while? We were. So uh, so when I went to McCord, he still had a little bit of his enlistment to do. So so I went on and he uh, he got out because he uh, wanted to go to school and separated. Uh, I guess we were separated for about four months before he joined me up there. And what was your first assignment like when you were actually doing your jobs? You finished the training and you were doing the work that you had been trained to do? Yes. So that, you know, that again, um, you know, the the lifestyle, the people, really, it's always been the people that I've had just the honor to serve with. And uh, it's just incredible, the talent that we have in the military. It just, it, it really kind of blows you away. And I, you know, I went to McCord, had a great bunch of folks that I worked with, really enjoyed it, um, enjoyed what I did. Um, it's The career field's now called air battle management, but back then it was kind of the whole the height of the Cold War. So we had a lot of alert units all uh, all around the uh, periphery of the United States. I was at the Northwest Air Defense Sector. And so we were responsible for the Northwest quarter of the US and um, for entry into that career field, um, that was just a place that there was just so much activity. I mean, you just really got to do the mission every single day. And um, it was a great place for a first assignment. Uh, the Pacific Northwest was great. Had my son while I was there. Again, th- things tend to move quickly <laughs> in the military. I joke often that my son's about three years premature because uh, we really did have a plan that we'd wait until my husband had graduated from college. And but, uh, but the best laid plans, he, he came along after uh, we'd been at McCord, I think about a year and a half. And what was it like to be a mom in the Air Force and your husband was going to school? It seems like that was a little bit crazy. Yeah, so, you know, I, I 
didn't really know anything else. So it was, it was one of those, you know, just, just kind of figured it out. I, I, I think, I think, you know, that I think all, all moms, you know, deal with that one way or another. Um, I was fortunate in that I was in a stateside assignment. I was on shift work, which sounds like that would be terrible, but it actually allowed us to kind of sync our schedules and, and as you know, when you're in the military and you have a family, it's a real partnership. I mean, you've got, you've got to be helping each other out because there's no way you're going to get through it otherwise. So, you know, we just kind of rolled up our sleeves and did, I look back now and I wonder where I had all the energy to do it. But when you're in the middle of it, it's just, that's just your life. That's just what you're doing every day. Yeah, that makes sense. My husband's doing shift work right now and it's, it's a lot of sacrifice, but we're making it work. And yeah. Yeah, but it's a it's a little easier with. I mean, it's funny. My kids, I've done quite a bit of shift work through the years, and my kids used to love when I would volunteer to work midnight shifts, which I hate. I can't really sleep during the day. But to them, they felt like they had a stay-at-home mom because I would sleep while they were away at school. When they came home, I was there, and you know, so they they said, "We wish you could work midnights all the time." I said, "Oh, please, no, <laughs> I can't do that." <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Yeah. So. How many years in was it when you made the switch from active duty to National Guard? Yeah, so um, so I was in for 10 years. I So I, I had the assignment at McCord, and then I was fortunate enough, again, not a lot of women in the career field at the time. So they the, back to the schoolhouse at Tyndall, they were really trying to increase the female instructors. So I had the opportunity to go from McCord back to Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida, which was very unusual. Um, really, I should have gone overseas from, uh, from Accord, which probably would have forced me into, into a decision earlier. But being that I had this two stateside assignments, it allowed me to, you know, to, to keep the stability in the family. And by then, my husband had graduated and he got a job down in Florida. But as, as I know you know firsthand, you know, there, there comes a point where you're ju- it just, you just can't see a path that, get it to keep lining up like that. <laughs> and I was at 10 years and I, you know, and I looked at, I looked back and I said, I've been really fortunate and I've really enjoyed it, but I can't see that I'm going to be able to line this up for the next 10 years. And, and I felt like I was starting to make my decisions that were in, in my own personal interest and not in the interest of the Air Force. And I, I didn't like being in that place. So um, by then we had two kids. I said, you know, I'm just, I'm going to call it quits. I'm, I'm going to separate and, and go on and, and do something else. And it just happened. I mean, it really, I'd already made the decision I was going to separate. It was the drawdown in the mid nineties. Um, and, um, and it happened that the air defense sector, so that first assignment I told you I'd gone to, were transitioning from the active duty to the guard. And there was one up in the state of New York, central New York, which is where I'm from. My mom was up there at the time and my brother. And I thought, well, gee, maybe I can, I can join that guard unit. And I didn't know anything about the guard except for a couple people um, that I served with that, that actually I respected very, very much. They were civilian instructors at the schoolhouse. And in the, you know, in the once a month, they were, they were guardsmen. So they would share their stories. And, and that is how I characterize the guard with these two people that I thought very highly of for their technical expertise. And they were, they were men of true character. And I thought, well, that, that might be a good match for me. But I didn't know if I was going to go full-time or part-time. I didn't really even know how it worked. I just, I just applied. And it just so happened that because they were hiring so many people at the sectors that they hired me um, right into a full-time position. So uh, we left January 1st, I think it was 19... 
95, it was January 1st, 1995. We drove up from Florida on New Year's Day up to New York and I joined uh, the uh, New York Air National Guard about 30 days later. Wow, that's interesting. That's interesting how it like all worked out and how those people were in the right place and it influenced your decision. So what was that switch like from active duty to National Guard? Was it what you expected or... I really didn't know what to expect. Uh, it was the same thing held true as far as the people I worked with. So phenomenal talent, you know, dedicated to the mission, dedicated to serving our country. What's neat about the Guard is that you really run into folks who will have a whole different life doing something else. And then they put on a uniform and, and come in and, and, and serve their country in so many different capacities. And they might be I mean, it's, it's funny. They may be, they may be a, a lawyer out in the civilian sector. They might be a, a police officer. Um, some of them are um, you know, fairly high up in different corporations. We had one uh, young woman. She was a pharmacist, but she, had, uh, she was enlisted in our unit. So she was, a, she was a staff sergeant when she was sitting scope back in Rome, New York. But then during the week, she was a pharmacist. So it was just, it's just interesting that the diversity of people you get to work with. Yeah, that's something that I've heard a lot on the podcast is the different people and the different skill sets that the reserves and National Guard bring that you don't see in the military because you don't have two different jobs. You just have your one full-time yeah. job. What I think I, I wish I had known earlier on, if, if someone had told me about the Guard, is that what it really does allow you to do is that you can you kind of go back and forth. But now I've always been full time. That's just the way it worked out for me. But we have folks who be part time. And so you can you can adjust a little bit better to the challenges of life. So there are, are, are women I've known who have you know, gone to a drill status and been part-time while they're raising their kids. And then they come to a point where they're comfortable and coming back and being full-time again. And allowing that flexibility, I think, is one of the, the great strengths in our ability to retain a lot of talent in the Guard. Yeah, that's a really good point. It does offer the flexibility that active duty can't, and it gives you that that you have more control, unlike on active duty, when you're like, I don't really have any control right, right. over my life. <laughs> So are there any highlights or stories you want to share from your time in the National Guard before you made the rank of general? We'll talk about <laughs> so, you know, I, it's, um, I, so I loved the unit. It, 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 it's interesting. It was the Eastern Air Defense Sector. Um, it went through a lot of different things in my time there. So when I originally joined the unit, the reason really had gone uh, to the Guard from being active duty was that mission was really seen to be somewhat waning. You know, the Cold War was really over. You know, the Berlin Wall had come down. Uh, the Russians uh, weren't flying along our coastlines anymore. So with the connection to homeland defense and a, a steadier, quieter mission, th there was a decision, I think at the time, that, that the Guard would be well suited for it. Um, little did we know that September 11th would happen. So that really changed, uh, that changed the mission of those Units, particularly at the Eastern Air Defense Sector, uh, you know, on that day, I, you know, I, re I remember uh, as we were, um, you know, trying on that day to scramble enough aircraft um, to get aircraft airborne to uh, to intercept the uh, four airliners uh, that were um, that were hijacked, and it it fundamentally changed the sector and and our mission and 
everything that happened after that. So the, they stood up uh, NORTHCOM as being a geographical command for the United States. It hadn't had that prior to September 11th. We really changed our mission from looking outward to re- looking inward and really being a daily sentinel, if you will, to protecting the citizens of this country. It really, really was very fulfilling to watch that mission change and evolve through the years. And you know, for me, so remember I told you I was at the Northwest Air Defense Sector in the mid-80s. And at that time, the commander of the sector was a, was a fighter pilot. All the senior positions in the sector were pilots. And fast forward now through the years, and I get to finish my, uh, you know, what, well, I thought I was finishing my active duty career in the Guard as the commander uh, of that same type of unit. So, it's just interesting that, you know, if I, if you'd asked me back in the mid eighties, you know, do you think you'd ever be, you know, commander of the sector? Well, first of all, I'd say I, I'm only going to be in for four years, so probably not. But then it, it just looked impossible because there just was no path for me, um, not just as a woman, but for me as an air battle manager to be able to, to get to that point. So being the commander of a unit of people I was just so proud to serve with really at that time was just the pinnacle of my career. And I was absolutely ready to just retire um, at that point and, uh, and go back to our house in central New York and, and settle down and, and go into retirement. But the air force had other plans. They weren't done with you yet. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, it is funny, you know, it's so much, uh, if, if someone had asked me back when I was second lieutenant, you know, if I could see, if someone had said, I would be sitting here with you, Amanda, um, talking about what it's like to be a two-star general, um, I, was, I well, I'm sure I would have laughed because there was no way I saw that that was ever, ever happening. And I never put myself in that category of caliber of people. And that's, but it is interesting. And that's why I do think it's, it's important because I don't like to talk about myself particularly, and I don't consider myself particularly unique which is why when these opportunities arise, I'm always a bit hesitant. But I remember very clearly General Dunwoody, General Ann Dunwoody, who was the first female four-star. Uh, she was a four-star in the Army. I remember her speaking at a USO event once, and I expected she was going to tell me about how, you know, she'd always wanted to be in the military, and now she had this, you know, this grand plan to, to make four-star. And she told a story about how she was, uh, a phys ed major in in, in uh, college, and I decided to join ROTC, kind of almost on a on a whim. And I thought that that was important that I heard her say that because it made me realize that there are other opportunities, and it's important that we tell our story as women because I think it's just very important that young women see that. There are so many opportunities for them and they can come into this from all different ways. And that, that doesn't, that doesn't limit where they're going to end up uh, on, on the other end of it. That's so true. And that really hits a theme that a lot of women have talked about on the podcast of thinking, well, I didn't do it the right way, or I wasn't, you know, following this path or whatever the case may be, but it, you just walk through open doors. I think Nicole Malolowski was on and she was said, timing, luck, and doing the right thing. And it's it's not always you, you're striving for it, but sometimes you're just in the right place at the right time and things happen and then you take advantage of it and you're able to bring change and help 
and help inspire the next generation, which is really absolutely, cool. absolutely. So when you got asked to be a general and you were already thinking about retiring and leaving the Air Force and going back to your house and what was that process like? Because it kind of was unexpected. And what, what went through your mind and then why did you decide to say yes? As I mentioned, I was the commander at the Eastern Air Defense Sector and I was coming up towards, you know, you're only, as a colonel, you can only stay in, you know, for a set amount of time. And I was coming up on that. And I felt very fortunate that I had been able to serve, you know, it was going to be 30 years. And at the time, the first Air Force commander, uh, it was Lieutenant General uh, Sid Clark, he became the director of the Air National Guard. And I worked for him as the sector commander. And as I was getting close to my retirement date, you know, he started to ask me if I would be, you know, if I'd be willing to leave New York to get promoted. And I, I said, you know, I, I really have to think about that because, you know, New York's where we want to stay. It's my state. The the kids had, you know, my, my son had at that point um, already graduated from college. My daughter was, I think she had graduated. Yeah, she had graduated from college at that point too. But, you know, it really wasn't my plan. But, you know, as I thought about it as an opportunity and I sat down and and talked to talked to my husband about it. And I said, you know, let's let's just try it. We'll try it for a year. Now his job was in New York, so this meant we were going to have to be apart for a year. And it was an opportunity and to go down and work as the Air Force was really starting to try to get their arms around uh, the issue of sexual assault, standing up that policy and program. And, and, and what General Clark had asked me to do was to, to represent the Air Guard as the Air Force went through it um, to make sure that the policies that the Air Force came forward with were policies that we could live with within Air Guard, as an Air Guard. And so it's something that resonated with me to, to a great extent because I had been very fortunate in 30 years to, with a few exceptions, have been just endorsed by the men that I worked for and with. So the notion to me that there were women that did not have that same opportunity was something that was very dear and deep to my heart. And so helping to stand up that program and, and make sure that uh, actually not just women, but all survivors of, of sexual assault had a voice and, and, and had the support that they needed just was something that made it worthwhile for me to, to leave New York and come down to DC. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, that really resonates with me because I had such a great experience. I had such good leaders and men, my commanders were all men and they helped me so much. And then to hear the stories of other women who went through such tragedy and, and to be a part of it and to help make it better, it makes a lot of sense why you would choose to do that. Yeah. And it's just, it's just so heartbreaking. And when you hear their stories, male or female, and there's just that feeling that, of, of helplessness. Um, you, you, you just, you just want to change it. You just want to make sure that no one else has that feeling while they're, while they're serving in uniform. Yeah. So you did that and you're still there and it's been over a year, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it's funny cause I had this, so I went to talk to General Clark, who's the director of the Air National Guard at this point. And, and I said, you know, sir, this, I came down as a one-year assignment. I'm, I'm at six months and he kind of nodded his head and he said, yeah. And I said, uh, so am I going back to, to New York? Or am I staying? He's like, well, you know, 
oh, we'll just, we'll just see what happens. And I said, okay. <laughs> and then, uh, so then uh, I moved into the job shortly after that. I guess I was, a how close did I get? I think it was about nine months into the assignment that they moved me over to be what they call the A3, which is the uh, director of operations for the Air Guard. Yeah. Another exciting job where you can make a big impact and, and be, when I was reading the articles, it was like, you're the first, first of this and this and this, and there were a bunch of firsts. Um, so it's really cool because you're the first non-pilot, right? And the first woman. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just that you're a woman, you're also a not non-pilot, just like you talked about earlier when you're a commander and a position that used to only be pilot. So what... What does it mean to be in that position, both as a the first woman and a non-pilot? Yes. So, you know, it, it really, it, you know, I was forced to make sure I had, had a good team. Actually, I inherited a great team, variety of operators, many pilots, but, you know, from a variety of different career fields. But you know, it, it's, it's a little intimidating when you're the first of anything because, you know, the, the, the fear of failure is strong. <laughs> and, and, of course, you have a, a certain amount of people who want you to succeed, and there may be a couple that, that don't. But you really, I, and, and I've, I've known throughout my career, you, you really have to rely on your team. And I had a lot of experienced people who, who were pilots that could give me the perspective in those areas where I, uh, where I didn't have that, and, you know, in the end, it's that, it's that diversity, right? It's get, getting the group together and, and diversity can mean a lot of different things. But the most important thing is you have just different people with different perspectives. And every time you have people with different perspectives and that you encourage people to have a voice and to give an alternate opinion, you're going to get to a better solution every single time. That's so true. Talking to you really reminds me of when I got the chance to talk to General Wilma Vaught because she always talked about the people that she worked for. And so it's interesting how often you mention the people and how the people matter so much. And that's how you are where you are today. And so there's a lot of commonalities between your story and her story. So it's really cool to hear that. Well, you know, and back to the, you know, it is, there's so much opportunity and luck in it. And sometimes it's just just taking the opportunity and, and then, um, you know, just, just doing the best you can in the, you know, in what's given to you and, and, and getting everyone to work together. But, you know, I, I have just been blessed. You know, when I look at all the people that I have had the opportunity to serve with, I am honored every day to, to you know, and, and many of them will, they'll, they'll write to me or, you know, they'll, they'll stay in touch afterwards. And it's just, it's every, every one of them has, has changed the person that I am um, because they've, they've given me something that, that makes me a better leader. So my last question is, what advice would you give to young women who are considering joining the military? Yes. So the first thing I would say is, um, is don't limit yourself. First and foremost, whatever job you're given, be the very best you can be at that job. You know, I, people, I think, who even didn't want a woman in the military, they would come around if you're a technical expert, because at the end of the day, they need you. They need you as part of the team. And don't limit what you think you can do based on what the world is like today. You know, if I had done that, I would have limited, you know, taking some of the opportunities because I would think, well, I can never be a commander. So I'm going to, I'm just 
going to go in this particular route. There, there will continue to be opportunities out there. Seek, um, seek all those opportunities you can and don't keep from doing something because it scares you. If I didn't do things because they scared me, I would have stopped a long time ago. It's, it's not fear. Um, it's, it, you know, it's facing that fear and pushing forward. And you, you'll be amazed that you are able to do things that you probably thought you were never able to do. And it, and it really doesn't, there's no such thing as the ideal uh, military officer. Be who you are as a leader. Um, and and people, will, people will accept that because you're genuine and, and you're being true to yourself and you're being true to them. That's such great advice and a perfect way to end the interview. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated getting a chance to talk to you and hear your story. Oh, my pleasure, Amanda. Best of luck to you. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Do you love all things Women of the Military Podcast? Become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review. It really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow. Are you still listening? You could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book Women of the Military on Amazon. Every dollar helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support.